Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we bow in your presence and we ask that the Holy Spirit of God would open the word of God to all the people of God. Speak, Lord, for your servants seek to hear. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So what can we learn from John the Baptist as he's introduced in John's gospel? That's the question for this morning. What can we learn from John the Baptist as he's introduced in John's gospel? John is a remarkable figure in human history. He's the ultimate illustration of Andy Warhol's 15 minutes of fame. (laughs) He doesn't exist. No one knows who he is. And there's a moment in time, and all of a sudden, he rockets right to the center of all of human history. He's on ABC Jerusalem, 6 o'clock news. He's on the front page of the Jerusalem Post and everybody's paying attention, and he's out there by the Jordan River. But the importance of this question for us this morning is he's portrayed differently in Matthew, Mark, and Luke than he is in John. And it's the texture of John's description that's of utmost importance for us. In the other Gospels, he's out there baptizing by the Jordan River, you remember, and he apparently hasn't taken Dale Carnegie's course about how to influence friends and win people because he says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, right? And besides, he's, he's wearing a garment of camel's hair and eating locusts and wild honey, which isn't exactly in the manual for how things are supposed to be done either. But in John's Gospel, we have these quiet almost two tentative words. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. So let's look at what John has to say to us, and I want you to turn, if you'd be kind enough to me, um, just to sort of indulge me, and I'm going to ask for it up on the screen if it's okay. John's Gospel, first chapter, verse 29. This is what isn't in the other Gospels. This is unique to John. And it's there twice. Did you catch it in case we missed it? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, verse 29. And then in case you missed it, it's there again in verse 36. Behold the Lamb of God. So here comes Jesus. Here's John. Here's the mediator. He's to be a voice crying in the wilderness. Behold your God. That's his job. He's to be a pointer. He's to be a lodestar. He's to be a prophet that shows the way to the way of God. And of all the things he chooses to do, the words are, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And brothers and sisters, every word in that sentence matters. So two questions. First of all, what's the worth of the Lamb? That's W-O-R-T-H. And the other is, what's the work of the Lamb? You with me so far? So the worth of the lamb and the work of the lamb. So first of all, the worth of the lamb for just a moment. Every word matters, I told you. Behold, don't go past that rip-roaring into the other words. They'd matter too, but let's just pause and slow down the film and make sure we're getting the full trajectory that John intends us to get. That word behold is loaded for bear. It's an imperative. It's a continuous imperative. It's in the middle tense. It's almost impossible to get it across into English. It involves you look, look you, but also do it now, don't delay. 
The only way that you can get all these ideas over into English is that old phrase that you hear sometimes used, lo and behold. And you know, when you, even when you're reading a children's story, when the narrator says, and lo and behold, you know, Santa's sleigh came out of the sky, you know a big moment is coming. The whole point of this is, before we get to what he says, he's trying to set the stage by saying, pay attention. You remember my favorite poet, Right, Mary Oliver, in one of her most famous poems, right? Lessons for living a life, ready? Pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. That's it, boom. But, but the, the reason why we're pausing there is because the tragedy of so many lives is the life that's not lived while the person is given the gift of life. We're there, but we're not there. The lights are on, but nobody's home. We see and we don't see what's right in front of us. And we have to wait and make sure that we hear the full force of, behold, don't don't miss this guy. If you ever wanted to not miss something, don't miss him. Pay attention. Look, look now. Look continuously now. Are we all together? All right, now, he's worth a ton, and he's described as the Lamb of God. What I want you to notice as we go flying by, first of all, is we'll just do this very quickly. This isn't the 21st century version, right, which would be right, very self-referential, right? So John would say, behold, I'm here. Hi, I'm John. I'm a prophet. I went to a good school. It would be all about him and his credentials. And all. There's no self-referentiality in this passage whatsoever, first of all. So let's just dispense with that, okay? I was telling a friend uh, the other day, I think it was Jonathan I was talking to about this on the social media, it said, what's the most important thing in the universe? You know, so I caught my attention. So I thought, oh, look. And the answer was, you. And I thought, oh, jeez. <laughs> And I thought to myself, poor God, you know, I mean, he's stuck with me. I'm the center, you know, I am the master of my fate. I am the, for crying out loud. This, this is not a self-referential passage, but I also want you to notice what he doesn't say, but he could say, behold, a great teacher, behold, a great moral example, behold, he could even say, a king and a leader of a whole new order of life, all of which would be impressive, all of which would also actually be true. No, no, of all the things he chooses to say, he says, behold the Lamb of God, which speaks to sacrifice and substitute. It's the name that's preferred to be used in Revelation. You know the book at the end of the Bible I talk about from time to time that no one reads, but it's really back there, and it really does matter. Twice in John's gospel, the phrase, the lamb, is used for Jesus. I should have you guess in Revelation. It's 28 or 29 times it's used in Revelation. So just in case you think I'm overemphasizing it, this is going to be the preferred title of Jesus in glory, so we better get used to using it. In the Old Testament, you've got that fabulous question that Isaac asked <coughs> His, his dad, right? So Abraham and Isaac are on the way up, and he says, my father, behold the wood and the altar, but where is the lamb, you remember? So the Old Testament question is, where is the lamb? And the New Testament statement is, behold the lamb, but don't miss in Revelation what it is, which is, you ready? Worthy is the lamb. That is to say, we're going to be worshiping the lamb forever. So we better be clear on what the lamb is. Where is the lamb? Behold the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. 
Now this word, lamb, is loaded for bear, and it ought to shock us. Steve Cole, in his commentary, says this, and I think it's important to get the full brunt of what he's after. It said, this is so familiar that it should shock us, but it doesn't. Think about it, he says. This is a radical thing for John to say. Here's a young Galilean carpenter and a bunch of Jewish people who for centuries have offered sacrificial lambs at the temple. And John says, oh, you know, the carpenter's son, this young man here who's learning carpentry in our community, yeah, him. This is the one whom God has sent to be what all those thousands and thousands of lambs over hundreds and hundreds of years symbolized. That's who he is. This is about something that's worth more than anything else in the world. This is about worship. John's, before he gets to defining what this guy's going to do, he wants you to see how important he is. And it's that story from Tim Keller that I told you about before, but I want to make sure you remember. So it's a woman in New York, and she's doodling around an apartment, and she finds this old brooch when she's working among sorting out some of her older things and getting to those things that we often don't get to that are hiding in our closets and our attics and so on and so forth. And she says, oh, that old thing. And she said, I really never got it appraised. So she goes and she gets it appraised. You remember this? And she goes to the jeweler's shop and the guy gets out his thing and he sort of looks at it and initially it's no big deal. And then all of a sudden as she's, as, as she, she's watching him, he kind of changes and he turns up the the, the, the light and the magnifying glass on the tool that he uses higher and higher and higher, and he starts sweating, and all of a sudden he realizes that what he's looking at is more valuable than anything else in his entire shop. In fact, everything in his shop combined. He's just complete, it's one of the most valuable brooches in the world, and she's just walked into his shop with it. And, and he's in awe. And she looks at him, and when he tells her, she's in awe. And what Keller says is, that's worship. All of a sudden, all your emotions and your will and your intellect, it's all suddenly changed because the value of what you're looking at is suddenly fully understood. Worthship. I like the ancient uh, prayer liturgy and worship liturgy in so many ways, but I love the wedding liturgy with this ring, I thee wed, with my body, I thee worship, and with all my worldly goods, I thee endow, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the giving of rings in the original liturgy. With my body, I thee worship. We don't talk that way anymore, but the whole point is your job as as a spouse is to show to the world, and especially to the person to whom you're covenantally married, their worth, their value, their importance, their significance. And every part of you, including your body, is intended to do that. And if you're not showing their worth in the fullness of what that means, you're not fully living into the covenant that God intends you to live into. Worship is powerful, and we're not talking about worshiping a gem, and we're not talking about worshiping a person. We're talking about worshiping the Lord himself. So how valuable is the person John introduces us to? And the only way I can get at it is simply to say invaluable, right? You just have to stop because we're at the edge of the edge. But just to throw in Paul's phrase, we're at the unsearchable riches of Christ, right? It's actually not possible to plumb the depths of how valuable But you're not going to understand his work unless you understand his worth. So just pause and look to Jesus and slow down the film. Everybody together so far? So how much is he worth? More than the whole world combined. 
more than the most valuable thing you can ever imagine, more than the most beautiful thing you can ever conceive of. That's how much he's worth. Stop there first. Second, what is his work? Look at your text. What a statement to make. Who takes away sin. The word means literally to lift something up and to carry it away. And I never tire of using these Old Testament images for you. The whole message of the cross is God takes our sins away through the cross of Christ. Remember, I will remember your sins no more. I will cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. I will cast your sins behind my back forever. The figure here is of two goats in Leviticus 16. If you're taking notes, I want you to take that down. You can look it up this afternoon. But there's two goats, and the high priest would confess all the sins of the people over one goat who would be sacrificially killed on behalf of the people. And the second goat, called the scapegoat, that confessed sins over him, he would be sent and be banished. He would would disappear. He would walk away and disappear into the wilderness. He would take the sins of the people figuratively away. But the book of Hebrews says the, the, all the blood of bulls and goats could never wash away sin. All that system and that sacrificial system is meant to point to the ultimate sacrifice, which is the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the words of someone, and we don't know who said it first, but I love to quote it, he came to pay a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. Again, he came to pay a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt he could not pay. And please notice what it says. It takes. It says some of the sins, no. Most of the sins, no. Almost all the sins, no. It says all the sin, and it says all the sin of the whole world because to be a Christian is to be global because our God is a global God. And when God starts his work in history, he says to Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Jesus came to the world because God made the world. Jesus came to die for the world, and he's coming back to the world. He cares about the whole world. That children's song, he's got the whole world in his hands, has got it right. It's a globally significant event. Christ is to us just what his cross is, just that and nothing more. Luther had a Latin phrase he liked to use, crux probat omnia, the cross is the test of everything. Just one story from church history, if I may. We're in the 19th century, we're on the Thames River, it's 1878, and we're back in the early part of the Industrial Revolution when London was a bustling metropolis and a lot of the travel and the mercantile trade happened on water. And there was the Princess Alice, which was an excursion steamer steaming down the Thames, and there was the Bywell Castle that was an outward-bound merchant steamship. And on this particular day, unfortunately, they collided, and over 700 persons fell into the Thames. Among the brave efforts that were made on that occasion to save all the drowning people, one was particularly noteworthy. A small boat owner who was down the Thames a bit saw the catastrophe happening in real time, took his boat, came back to the dangerous area, rowing with all of his might, and began to pull several of the drowning passengers into his little teeny boat, which became fuller and fuller. And the people would say, as he said later, "'Oh, save me, sir! Don't leave me, sir!' And on and on it went until his boat got half full and three quarters full and then it was totally full. And you know what I'm going to say. There are more people in the water. 
and he's, he's purported to have cried out in total agony, throwing up his arms, Oh God, that I had a bigger boat. Oh God, that I had a bigger boat. His heart was large enough to save all, but his boat was too small. His power was too limited. Now listen, it is not so with Christ. He is the lifeboat of perishing humanity, and in him there's room for the whole human race, for he is the propitiation for our sins. This is straight from the prayer book, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. His boat is big enough for you and for me and for the whole world. Are we together? It is an awesome redemption. It can never be thought of deeply enough or fully enough or completely enough. In the words of the prayer book, I bless you for my creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life, but above all, for the redemption of the world through our Lord Jesus Christ, for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's supposed to be our focus as Christian people. So we all together so far, the worth of the Lamb and the work of the Lamb. Now I'm going from preaching to meddling, then we're done. So you thought I was done, huh? No, no such luck, brothers and sisters. Now, this has massive implications. So let's consider two of them, first of all. Let's, let's just stop on behold and look. And let's do it in two directions. First of all, I believe that this is a call for us to look generally. That is to say, to pay attention to what's actually in front of us. Don't miss the life that's passing before your eyes while you're living, brothers and sisters. So here's a way to really meddlingly ask the question. What is it in your life right now that's literally right in front of you that you're not beholding? You better think about that. Some of you have never in the last month even thought about how thankful you need to be for your, and I'll just start filling in blanks, your, your spouse, your children, your job, the fact that you have a house over your head, the fact that you live in a country where there's religious freedom, I could go on, the fact that you're at Holy Cross, which is a, even though it, we're totally inadequate, in spite of ourselves, we have some idea of what we're doing. Do you know how many churches in the United States don't have any idea what they're doing? Look, you're in a church that has some idea what it's doing. Praise God. You know, I have a small list, very small. People have some idea what they're doing in parish ministry. You know, it's a very small list. It's not very big. Well, you're in a parish that has some idea what it's doing. That's not to be taken for granted. There's so many things that we're called to see. That, that phrase of Mary Oliver's, pay attention, be astonished, tell about it, it applies in a general sense. But don't miss the real significance of what John is doing. It's the specific sense that I'm really interested in. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, brothers and sisters. Don't just look generally. Look specifically. Look to him. You know this, but I'm going to quote it to you anyway. It's Hebrews chapter 12 at the beginning. Do you remember? So he's just spent an entire chapter rehearsing what I like to call, instead of the hall of fame, the hall of faith, right? It's a, all these heroes of the faith. And then he says, at the beginning of chapter 12, he just kind of stops. He says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a crowd of, cloud of witnesses, and you do know, right, that every Christian that's come before you is watching you run the race in glory. You do know that. You're actually on a racetrack surrounded by all the Christians that have come. They're all watching you. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with perseverance the race which is set before us, setting aside every sin and weight which clings so closely. Listen, wait for it. Here it comes. Yep. Looking to Jesus. There it is. 
Did you catch it? Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Looking to Jesus. The sheer power of this can be missed, and I don't want it to be. One of the lovely things about this verse is the way that it appears from time to time in the the history of the church. And it's one of those phrases that people sometimes use when they do sound checks or when they're in a place that's not familiar to them. One of my favorite examples is of the Brethren minister, George Cutting. This is a 19th century story also. But he's actually in a place where he's going to later go back and do an evangelistic crusade and door-to-door evangelism. And he's just trying to familiarize himself with this uh, English village. And he just feels led. And so one day he says, just out loud, because he feels led by the Spirit, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he said at the time, he said, no sooner that he, and he, they just kind of rang there, and he said, later he said, for, for reasons I can't fully explain, after I said them, I felt I had to repeat them. So he says it again. Now, a half year passes, and now he's back in the same community. He's doing his crusade. He's doing door-to-door evangelism. He knocks at one woman's door. She comes to the door, and Cutting looks at her and says, are you saved do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? And the woman looks at him and starts weeping. And she says, oh, yes, she says, six months ago, I was in incredible distress about the salvation of my soul. I pleaded for God's help. Then a voice cried, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I was so in doubt, I asked God to repeat what he had said. And the voice came again. Boom. So look in general and look to Jesus. That's the first set of questions. And the second is learn. Learn. Learn that the cross is the heart of it all. Luther's right. Of all the things John chose to say, he said this because this is where it's at. You can never exhaust going from Good Friday out. And what you really need to learn as a Christian is the heart of the Christian faith is not from your concerns and the world and all the wrestlings in. It's from the foot of the cross and the cross out. And the second thing is to learn. Learn what the Lamb of God really means. You meet a Christian who's been at it 30, 40, 50 years, and you know what you notice about them? They never get tired of hearing what they call the old, old story. In fact, the older they get, the more excited they get. They never tire of hearing the gospel. Why? Because it's the most important story in the world. It's the core of their identity. I was sitting there yesterday looking at our um, former beloved rector, now bishop-elect. I have to learn to use all these titles. Chris Warner was preaching at uh, Betsy Tezza's funeral, his last act before he left yesterday. They got in the car and were on their way to Virginia. But I was listening to him. He was preaching on Romans 8. For I am sure that, that neither death nor life nor things present nor things to come nor principalities nor powers can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I was looking at him and I was listening to him preach and I was watching and I was thinking, if you listen carefully, what you realize is Chris wasn't preaching from the outside of Romans in. He was preaching from the inside of Romans out. That is to say, if you listen carefully, you could, you could see years of prayer and suffering and struggle with what? What does the cross actually mean? 
He knows it in his gut because it's the heart of the reflection. So he preached with absolute confidence that nothing could separate us from the love of God. He's spending his life meditating on and reflecting on and plunging into the depths of who Jesus is. This is a great, great passage for so many ways, but it's also simple, and I don't want the simplicity of it to be lost. Brothers and sisters, I offer you the worth of the Lamb, and I offer you the work of the Lamb, and I challenge you to look, really look, not just in general, but look to Jesus, and to learn, and to never tire of learning of the riches of his grace at the foot of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.